to uh, Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to consider together verses 12 through 17 this morning. And uh, hear God's word. <coughs> Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Let's pray. Our Father, you are a, a, a good, good Father. You love us so well, and we thank you for that. We thank you for this opportunity to meditate on your word and to hear the message from you. So much has happened in this service so far this morning. And Father, we, we pray that you help us to bring our minds back to your word and to what you have said to us. We ask that you would apply your word to our lives and that you would transform our lives. And we ask that you would do this for Jesus' sake. We also pray for our children. Lord, would the gospel work mightily in their hearts? Would you bring them to yourself? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a story that's been told, and um, I don't know if it's true or not. Uh, I was asked by a, a friend who's a screenwriter in Hollywood. She said, can you tell me the source of that story? And I've, I've researched, and most recently... Um, the, I found someone who, who said that they heard it from John MacArthur. So maybe, um, I don't know, um, but I've heard this story a number of times. And it's a story of a man who was dealing with some grief and some difficult times, and he was alone, and, and he kind of wandered away from church. And he quit attending church. He was a member, but he, he didn't go anymore. And, and one day the pastor decided, at one evening, the pastor decided to pay him a visit, and the pastor comes over to the house, and they greet one another, and they sit down. The man knew, okay, I, I kind of know why the pastor's here, right? You haven't, you haven't been there for a couple months, and pastor wants to come visit. You pretty well got that figured out, right? And so they sit down, both of them in the chairs, looking at the fire, and the pastor's just kind of quiet for a while as they're just enjoying the moment. And the pastor steps up, and he takes the tongs, and he finds a little ember, and he he pulls it away from the rest of the fire and sets it off to the side. And, and the flame that was on it just slowly goes out and the smoke comes up and, and it gets darker and grayer and it just kind of gets cold. And they sit for a time and the pastor gets up and he picks up that ember and he puts it back into the fire, sets the tongs away, and it bursts into flame. He says, well, I guess I'll be heading home now. The man shakes his hand and says, Pastor, thank you for that fiery sermon. <laughs> I'll be there on Sunday. Amen. Now, I'd like to think it was true, but I've known a lot of pastors, and none of us are quite that clever. But anyway, <laughs> um, but it does show me something of the tenderness of a heart of an individual to be able to hear God really drawing them to himself. But it also illustrates for us beautifully the, the relationship of, of the body, that, that we're, we're not just individuals. Now, 
faith is an individual thing. There's no question about that. We, we relate to God as individuals. And yet there's an interconnectedness to us that goes beyond what we see and think about on the norm. It's why, why God uses terms like the body of Christ to talk about our, our interconnectedness and how important that is. As we've been looking at Hebrews chapter 12, up till this point, it's been very much focused on the individuals, right? Each individual is to, to notice the, the great cloud of witnesses. Each individual is, is, is to be recognizing the discipline of God in their individual life. But in verse 12, he, he, he makes a shift, and he starts to talk about our, our corporate identity. And now he's starting to talk about us as, as, as a body and as a group, and he wants to, to turn our focus in, in that area. Now, remember, he's writing this to Jewish Christians. These are individuals who grew up in Judaism. They grew up under the old administration of the covenant of grace. They grew up in that environment in which they would, they would have their, their, uh, the Jewish rituals, the Jewish sacrifices, the, the Jewish priesthood. All of that was a part of their lives. And then Jesus came, and they learned about him, and they believed, and yet then they found themselves in between. This, this transition into the new administration of the covenant of grace wasn't something that just happened so easily because they had to set aside and they, they found that they were, they were thrown out of the synagogues oftentimes. They were, they were isolated from, the, from the, their communal life because remember that Judaism was more than just, and today is more than just a religious citizen. It's, it's also a family structure. It's a community. And so they've left that community, but then they're also thrown out of Rome because Rome views them as, as uh, being uh, insurrectionists, if you will, looking at a, at a king above Caesar, which is King Jesus. And so they find themselves w w without, a, without a body, without a group of people, without a community. And the author then begins to deal with that and is inviting them to live as a community. And that's the invitation to us as well that we can live as a community. How do we do that? I think there are two things that he shows us that, that ought to mark out the community of Christianity. And the first is, let's promote faith. To promote faith, verses uh, 12 and 13. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Um, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10 uses a, an, an interesting phrase in speaking of, of the church of Christians. As uh, the Apostle Paul says, So then, while we have opportunity, let us good, do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. He starts talking about a, a community, that, that the church is the, the household of the faith. Not the household of the doctrines, although that was clearly a part of that, as, as I love uh, Tim in pointing that out, that, that our, our doctrines are much more than a list of things that we recite together, but that they, they need to be integrated in the entirety of our lives. They are our faith. They're an expression of what we believe as we live that out. But he speaks of the church as this household of the faith. And faith becomes a central idea in what Paul wants to get across as something that marks out the church. It's their faith is, is so key to their life. Faith is maybe the most important virtue that we can build in each other's lives. Now, some may be saying, oh, pastor, I think it's love. I say, okay, well, you got something there. How do you love? It's an expression of faith. I think faith becomes foundational then to the love. 
So it is faith that we need to build in our lives. Think about what, what Peter says about how important faith is in 1 Peter chapter 1 as uh, he describes to those that, that he's writing to, verses 6 and 7. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How do we endure trials? Knowing that the testing of our faith and our faith is more valuable than gold that's how important it is for us to be to be growing in faith and be promoting faith there was a a, a recent uh, pew research <coughs> survey that was done and it was interesting it was it was talking to people about why they go to church and 81 percent of the respondents who said it was important to go to church said that they believed that growing closer to God was a very important reason to go to church. Isn't that cool? And I thought, you know, because, you know, those of us who are cynical go, nah, people go to church for the music, people, people go to church for the fashion, people go to church for the wonderful chairs. We come up with anything else, yeah. But, but 81% of people say the very important reason is I want to grow closer to God. And let that just be, you know, a, a rebuke when our hearts get all cynical. And say, no, no, people want to know Jesus. They really do. And it's important. But Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it's impossible to please God, for the one who comes to him must believe that he is, and he's a reward of those who seek him. Faith is key. If I'm going to accomplish that goal that I wanted to go closer to God, I need faith. And if I'm going to find growing closer to God in church, I need a church that's going to promote faith in my life. How? Two ways that verses 12 and 13 tell us. The first is to strengthen the weak. Verse 12. Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. The hands that are weak. The word weak there speaks of, of, being, of, of kind of hanging limp. That it's got Again, no strength in it. That's, that's the image. And as I, as I was kind of researching that, looking at what the word means and just hanging limp, I remembered an uh, experience in seminary. When I first started seminary, it was in the mountains of Colorado, and uh, we could do some different jobs to help maintain the, the school. Uh, the school was built by the uh, main professor, and by built, I mean um, he, he, he cut down the trees, he milled the lumber, he built the buildings. And so a lot of times he'd use students to kind of help maintain them. And I was doing roofing on a, a new house that was being built. How many of you have done roofing with a hammer? Okay, you know where I'm going, right? Right? After a couple hours, it's like I'm swinging that hammer and it's just flopping in my hand. I can't even squeeze my hand around it anymore. It's just so weak because I'm just not used to swinging that big old hammer. And it's like, that's what he means. The hands that are weak within the body. Because it's hard to hold on to faith sometimes, isn't it? As trials come into our life, as we face opposition, as we, we become aware of and experience our own personal weakness, it's just hard to believe. And you know what? We can help one another as we strengthen the hands that are weak, but also the knees that are feeble. As he says also in verse 13, feeble, it would mean paralyzed. It's uh, paraluo is, is the, the, the two words from which we get paralyzed. 
that they're paralyzed, knees that are paralyzed, they can't, they can't bend, they can't move, they can't work, that they've been stuck. Um, many of you have heard of the, the, the idea of fight or flight, right? That as you face a situation and you get hypervigilant, you're, you're, you're either I'm going to fight or I'm going to run away, and, and you have that response inside you. But there's a, another one in which you, you under-respond to the moment, and that'll be you'll, you'll be tempted to either freeze or fawn. And by fawn, it means, oh, whatever you want. And by freeze, it's like, I can't do anything. I remember experiencing that one time I was in a cave with a, a friend. I wrestled with claustrophobia most of my life and uh, was in this cave, and we had to go through this small section. Uh, it was from, from, from here to about here. You had to get down, and it was about 8, 10 feet, and you had to go through it. And he said, okay, just go ahead and go through there. And I froze. I'd never experienced that. And I've heard people talk about that. I said, oh, yeah, they're just exaggerating. It is not an exaggeration. I, I, I could not move. And my friend saw me and tried to, to work with me. He says, well, I got to go through anyway, so you just wait here because that's what you're going to do anyway. And he goes in, and then that's what broke. It's like, he's going to die in there. I got to go be with him. And, and God was able to unfreeze me. But that moment of freezing, and it can happen. And sometimes there are people who just get stuck in their faith, right? Sometimes we get stuck in our faith. That we just aren't growing anymore. We're just, we're just stuck. We're frozen. We're paralyzed. And what we need at that moment is the body to come alongside and to help us, if you will, unfreeze us. And then what he's saying is we need to help those individuals. We've got to strengthen the weak. That means we need to come beside them. To come beside people is how I'm going to strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees which are feeble. To come beside them and to remind people of their value to remind people of the reality of what God thinks about them. And it's important that we remind people of the value that we have as, as a corporate entity. But it's so much more important that we begin to talk to individuals about the individual's value. I was doing refuge training in uh, uh, Hanover yesterday, and they had a, a wonderful group of people that got together, um, a group of women who were wanting to become mentors, and a group of men who wanted to know, how can I minister to those who've gone through abuse? And as I've been taking them through this, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of doing a woe is me thing. It, so uh, all, all day Friday, all day Saturday, um, you know, I think it was about 12 hours of, of lecture, you know, in two days. And I'm looking at Tim and I'm going, you probably call that Monday, right? So I, I, I should just get over <laughs> my, my feeling tired about all that. But, but spending all that time with him and I noticed as I'm talking to these women that have suffered this abuse and helping to prepare them, the moment in which the most impact hit them emotionally is when we talked about what we as individuals mean to Jesus. As they were meditating on the fact that he sees you as an individual as a delight. As he loves you and he values you as his child, as his beloved, as his bride. It broke through and just impacted because it is such an important thing for each of us to know exactly how valuable we are in Christ. And as that happens, I'm unfrozen. Strength comes back. And I'm able to move forward to remind one another of the value, to provide direction and strength. That's why going back to Galatians, in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, I remember being a, a, a Christian and, and hearing other Christians when I was new in the faith and I remember being a Christian. That didn't sound well. <clears throat> being a young Christian 
and hearing Christians talk about Galatians 6.1, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such one in a spirit of gentleness, and each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And it's like, yeah, yeah. Someone's struggling. We need to get around there. We've got to help them out of there. We've got to get them right. And I forgot about verse 2. And then I read verse 2. It's like, oh, this changes the whole spirit. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. It isn't us running around and saying, hey, you, get right. It's my coming up alongside and saying, how can I help carry this with you? Let's do this together. I'm with you. And as I think about our, 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 our new officers, uh, Matt and, and Jack, I know I'm not supposed to charge you, that was already done, uh, but this, this really stands for you, doesn't it? And all of us, as a body, how do we come alongside someone and help them so that we strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble? We strengthen the weak and we also heal the wounded. Verse 13. But you know, whoop, Galatians 5.13 won't help. Uh, and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. But rather be healed. To heal the wounded. Help them to keep on the path. Well, and to do that, we have to begin by keeping on the path. Right? He talks about that at the beginning. To make straight paths for your feet. To stay on the path. Because you can't help someone if you're not on the path. Right? You can't help them if you yourself are caught up in the current. Uh, C.S. Lewis uses this uh, image in the book Mere Christianity, and I've, I've always loved this little statement. Of course, it's C.S. Lewis, so of course I love it, but um, he uses the, the illustration. He says, if I am drowning in a rapid river, a man who still has one foot on the bank will give me a hand which saves my life. Ought I to shout back between my gasps, no, it's not fair, you have an advantage, you're keeping one foot on the bank. That advantage, call it unfair if you like, is the only reason why he can be of any use to me, right? Yeah. So for me to be used to other people, I need to be sure, if I'm going to help them stay on the path, I need to stay on the path myself. I need to be sure that I'm in that, that, that straight path that I'm making for them. That by that I'm providing for them an example and guidance. That this is the way. And then we need to stand together. He talks about the limb which is broken. Um, the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. <coughs> the limb which is broken. Some of you have experienced broken, like a broken ankle. Remember in 2006, I was playing basketball, and I went up for a rebound, and I came down, and there was a person on each side of me, only I landed on one of their feet, and my ankle rolled. I was telling one of my deacons about it. He says, I don't believe you. I said, why? He says, I played basketball with you. I said, so? He says, I don't think you can jump high enough to land on someone's foot. <laughs> Ben's back there going, truth. <laughs> I did, and, and it just crumbled. And I'd never experienced before the fact that I could not put any weight on that foot at all. And in order just to get into the, the urgent care, I had to lean on another person and almost be carried in to the urgent care to get that, that ankle repaired. 
Well, we face similar types of things in, in our lives in this world. We as a body can stand with the wounded. And sometimes they're wounded because they did, did dumb things, right? Every one of us, we got a whole bunch of stupid in us, right? <laughs> we, we can do that really well. And sometimes it hurts us. And you know, that's not the time that I, I necessarily need to be rejected. That's the time I need someone to come alongside and help carry me through. And maybe telling me, you know, that was really stupid. <laughs> yeah, it was. And so let's not do that some more. And, and that's how we carry one another through those, those difficult and those, those trying times when we're, when we're wounded. So let's first of all promote faith, but secondly, let's promote reconciliation. Verses 14 through 17. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one, no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes you trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. <clears throat> Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. The book of Second Corinthians is a book all about reconciliation. But in chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, he tells us how important reconciliation is. He says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself, through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Twice, he tells us he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. The church has been given the task of reconciliation. It's what we're about. It's what we're seeking to do. We say that our purpose is to see every man, woman, and child in the world trusting in Jesus Christ. That means we are seeking to see reconciliation between every person in the world and God Almighty. That's our desire, is to be about reconciliation. The church should be a place of reconciliation. The church should be a place in which wars cease because God has caused them to cease. It should be a place of peace. It should be a place of reconciliation. Not that there's no broken relationships, but relationships are healed here. But there are strained relationships in the church. There, there are, within our church, we find times where we disagree with one another, right? And sometimes it seems like, well, when I disagree, the thing is, cut them off and have nothing to do with them. We have hurt in the church. Sometimes we hurt each other. Sometimes we say things we, we, we really regret. Sometimes we say things we shouldn't have said. Sometimes we think things we shouldn't think. And there's hurt that happens in the church. Sometimes we take offense. And yet, we need to be working toward reconciliation. Think about Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5. Verse 22. No, nope. Sorry, verse 23. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Reconciliation is more important than the offering. Reconciliation is more important than the tithe. Reconciliation is central. 
There are four ways that providence can promote reconciliation from this passage. And there are four needs that we have. First of all, we need peace. Verse 14 says, pursue peace with all men. Pursue peace. We talked about peace last week, reminding us that peace is when everything is right. That's when peace occurs. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace occurs when everything is right. We experience low levels of peace when some things are right. We receive total peace with God when He puts all things right. How do I make sure that everything is right? How do I promote peace? Let me suggest uh, uh, four steps. First, confess. The first step is to confess your sins. I don't know if I have passages of Scripture. I guess I don't. Um, to, to confess, uh, we, we know 1 John 1, 9, confess your sins and he's faithful and just. Forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But what if we confess our, our failings to each other? Well, sometimes we're afraid to do that because we're not sure we'll be forgiven. And it's like, okay, well, maybe I just need to confess it because it's right because I'm not trying to manipulate someone to get something out of them. I'm just going to confess because I did the wrong thing. Secondly, after confess, how about we forgive? I'm, I'm going to forgive, which means I'm going to let go of their throat, Right? I don't have to get a pound of flesh. I don't have to get the apology I want. I don't have to get them to say exactly the words that I want. I can just release and forgive them and find myself free. How about if, 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 if I choose to just not take offense in the first place? In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we have the description of love, and right in the middle of this description of love is that statement, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. How many of you are like me who would like to cut that out of the Bible? right? But yet it's the Word of God. I'm not supposed to. If I'm loving someone, I'm not taking account of a wrong that suffered. I'm not easy to be offended. And finally, to bring peace, I'm going to show grace. Unmerited favor. Does that person deserve? No. No, they don't. But I can still show them grace, can't I? Because I have received grace. And as I've received, I will show it. Secondly, we need holiness. He says, pursue peace and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. That's a powerful statement. The holiness, sanctification means holiness. The holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We need sanctification. We need holiness in our lives. Let me read to you what the Shorter Catechism says about holiness or sanctification. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. As we work within one another's lives and in our own lives and we seek that greater level of holiness, that greater level of dying to my sin and living to righteousness, what does it do? It brings reconciliation in the body of Jesus Christ. Examine yourself. Psalm 139 tells us to search me, O God, and know my heart, try me, and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And as I have God examine me and I look inside and I'm honest in comparing my life with Scripture, I find areas where I'm lacking. And so what do I do? I then confess my sin to God. I go to Him and I say, I, I have sinned against you. First John 1 John 1.9, which I quoted just a moment ago. <clears throat> and after confession, I work to change. I seek to bring a change in my life. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 4.9 says, The things you have seen and heard in me and learned, 
do them and the God of peace will be with you. He says, you've learned it, you know it, now do it. Put it into practice, which is how you believe, by putting it into practice. Our first step is to pursue peace. The second is uh, that we, we need peace, then we need holiness, and thirdly, we need forgiveness. We need forgiveness. Verse 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Isn't it fascinating that this idea of root of bitterness coming inside me means I've come short of the grace of God. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? That that root of bitterness, which is unforgiveness, is to come short of the grace of God, that the grace of God is in our lives, that it might take us beyond that, that it might take us to the place where we really, truly forgive. Think about Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. So as those who have been chosen of God, that is, recipients of grace, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Well, it's a good thing God made us get everything right before he forgave us, right? Oh, wait, that's heresy. God forgave us before we got it right. Doesn't Romans 5.8 said that God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? And that's how I am to forgive my brother or sister in Christ, just as the Lord has forgiven me. Don't require anything. Just forgive. Why? Jesus. Finally, we need repentance. Verse 16. And that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance though he sought for it with tears. It says to have no immoral or godless person. And Esau found no place for repentance. And it goes on to say, for he sought, though he sought for it with tears. What he sought for was the blessing. He didn't seek for repentance and couldn't find it. He couldn't find repentance in his heart because he didn't have any. And we can find those times in our life when we have no room for repentance and when our heart is so hardened. And what we're reading here is if we're going to be a place of reconciliation, there can be none of that. We have to find a place for repentance and I love the shorter catechism tells us about repentance unto life in question number 87. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Boy, that's packed, isn't it? There's so much there. I just want to draw your attention to a few different elements. And the first is that if I'm going to have repentance in my life, the first thing I've got to do, I've got to seize God's mercy. He says to apprehend the mercy of God. That's more than simply recognizing it as a truth. That would be to comprehend. But to apprehend. Apprehend. That's a word that you'd use of, of the police catching a criminal, right? He apprehends them. He grabs a hold of it and takes possession of it. That's what I want to do with the mercy of God. If I'm going to have repentance in my life, I've got to seize the mercy of God. To grab a hold of it and bring it in. 
so that it becomes a part of who I am. And that gives me power to repent, for it is his kindness that leads us to repentance, Romans 2.4 tells us. Secondly, I've got to trust his active and powerful grace in my life. As I seize his mercy, I recognize that God's grace is powerful and it is at work in my life, and therefore I can turn from my sin. I can renounce it. I can denounce it. I can say, I want nothing to do with you anymore. I'm done with you. I'm finished with this. I am following after Christ, and I'm going to trust him. And the final step is to turn to Jesus. And I would ask you to do that today. Have you ever trusted that Jesus Christ is your Savior? Do you believe that the only way that you can be made right with God is that Jesus died for your sins? Do you know that there's no amount of good works that you can do that make you acceptable to God? Do you know that you need Him to forgive you simply because of His free mercy? If you answer, I'm not sure or no to any of those, I would invite you this very day, turn to Jesus, cry out, Father, forgive me because of Jesus and trust in Him today. As I was a kid, I was convinced that the greatest weapon that ever existed was a disintegration ray. Some of you are my age, you're like, yep, yep, I remember. Yep, we're, we're trying to come up with, a, we're playing our whatever battle we're in our pretend guns. Well, mine's a disintegration ray. It's like, oh, I lose. There's nothing. I, I was going with tank and, and, and the disintegration ray. It just doesn't, it, it's, it's just great. I tried to find pictures that I could put up. I couldn't find anything that would work. Go figure. What is it that a disintegration ray does? It takes something, it breaks it into a billion separate pieces, right? Yeah. It disintegrates whatever it's aimed at. You know, we're the body of Christ. And we're not disintegrated. We're integrated. Strength is in our integration. The fact that we are millions and billions of pieces that are connected. We're connected by faith. And we're working for God. Let's live as a community, as a community that promotes faith and promotes reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, thanks. Thanks for loving us. Thanks for giving us this day. Thanks for giving this congregation such incredible patience with a long, long service. But thanks, O oh God, that you have been here in this service. Please receive our worship, more so receive our hearts. And please make us, O oh God, into a community that promotes faith and reconciliation. We ask in Jesus' name.